Hey guys, it's Pete Vernon, and this is The Kicker, a podcast about all things media from the Columbia Journalism Review. We've come to the end of the year. We're off next week for the holidays. And so I'm joined right now by a full house. I've got my colleagues, Alex Neeson and Meg Dalton here with me. And we're also joined by our boss, CJR editor and publisher, Kyle Pope. So Kyle, I'll start with you. We're sitting here towards the end of December after a busy, exhausting, exhilarating, troubling 2017. What are we taking away from this? You know, you're the one that keeps saying and keeps reminding me that a year ago today, Barack Obama was president, which is insane. It's astonishing. Um, It's been it's been amazing. I mean, it's it's been exhausting. It's been amazing. It's been invigorating. It's been all those things. I do think when I look back on the year and think about like what's really been important, one of the things I'm hit with is how much time we spent on stuff that hasn't been important. Like how much time we spent on you know bullshit. Stuff on Twitter. Stuff on Twitter. Yeah. Um, journalism Twitter has not been hasn't hasn't had its best year. I don't think. You know, I think I think what what we've tried to do at CJR is like try to think about how do we rise above all that. How do we focus on stuff that's going to matter? One of the ways to do it is to think about what are the sort of four or five moments that really stand out for the year and that sort of stick in your mind as the things that that define what we just lived through. Nice setup because that's what we're going to do today. The story that I think we can't avoid and that we are going to be talking about, even though it's the thing that comes up every day in some minuscule, ephemeral, not important ways, is the impact that a person like Donald Trump, someone who wasn't a politician, someone who was a celebrity in different fields and someone who has come to the job and, if nothing else, has shaken up Washington, the role that he's played in disrupting journalism, in monopolizing our time is just to use a word that is perhaps overused, unprecedented. So Alex, what are we going to be talking about or what are we going to be thinking about 2017 and Donald Trump's role in it? I mean, I I think one of the problems of having our attention uh, and our time so monopolized by him is that it's difficult to, to figure out, like, what are the things in just the first year of his administration um, that are really going to define like his legacy as president. Um, and I think that's sort of part of the problem right now is that everything's happening nonstop and, and we're sort of sifting through everything and trying to figure out what's important and what isn't and, and what should we really hold on to, what should we be following up on even. Everything's just sort of frenetic right now. It seems like everything is a big deal every day. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's there hasn't, I think in 2017 there hasn't been like a strategic, I guess, categorization by journalists into like what Trump stuff falls into what categories. There's like the policy, the politics, and the character. And I think so often as journalists, we always tackle the politics and the character because they're so much easier. But the policy is what matters the most. And I don't think that we did a good enough job in 2017 tackling the policy. And I'm hoping in 2018, the focus for journalism will be on policy and not those other two buckets. I do think that one of journalism's jobs is to sort of prioritize things for readers and like not shout at the top of our lungs every story that comes down the pike. And I think that's been a big mistake that we've all made, partly because, I mean, let's be honest, I think there's been an effort to try to document the insanity in I don't, for, towards what end, I don't know, maybe to sort of say this guy's unstable, to say that 
this is a completely unprecedented moment for this country to say that, like, we've never been here before and it, and we just can't get our head around it. But I think it's sort of we've sort of shirked our duty in a way as journalists whose job it is to sort of sift through and make decisions and say, you know what? And this has been my argument about Twitter and Trump, which is that you know we don't have to like go crazy every time he tweets something that's outrageous. We had to go crazy the first 20 times because it was so strange. But the next 50, I don't think we need to. Part of that is that outrage sells, right? Well, I, I agree with that. Like the outrage does sell, um, but it feels like we've kind of settled into these habits and haven't we haven't been um, particularly adaptable um, in ways that I think Donald Trump actually has been. I think that he's he knows how to use Twitter to sort of like feed his own brand, for lack of a better word. And he's been doing that, and 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 I think he's doing that increasingly well. And so we're so reactive; we just keep reacting, and and that was okay the first twenty times, like you said, Kyle. And we just haven't really figured out how to determine like which tweet is the tweet that deserves a story, and and which like outburst in whatever. I don't know. I don't think that we've done a particularly good job at like figuring out how to cover him from a policy standpoint uh, or a Twitter standpoint, really. And so the explanation part of journalism sort of gets lost in all that because it's like you're just throwing everything at the reader and the reader traditionally is supposed to rely on us to say, like, here are the things that actually matter. So when we look back on 2017, is the takeaway that this was just an incredibly chaotic, news-packed year where no one was quite able to get their head around what's actually going on and what's important? I mean, I don't. I don't think that's true. I think there was some amazing reporting that went on, um, and there was some amazing resources being dedicated to real stuff. Uh, I mean, some of the reporting that's been happening, even in the last few months, on what's going on within the EPA, mm. or what's going on within mm. the Energy Department, or you know, even what's going on in the Treasury. I mean, there's there's real reporting on real policy issues. I mean, it, the, the issue is is it's getting drowned out. Um, by all the other nonsense. Yeah, and I mean I, I mean that we haven't figured out how in a consistent way to sort of balance the two. So yeah, the reporting, there is important reporting done and really sort of phenomenal reporting being done under difficult circumstances, but we haven't figured out, like the, maybe the problem is in delivery. Like how do we make sure that the important stuff, like you said, is not just buried under these this constant stream of like news about whatever Donald Trump tweeted in a way where in 2017, Donald Trump was kind of guiding media coverage, whereas in 2018, we need to think about how we can kind of guide the media coverage about Trump. Yeah. Having looked back for uh, an end of year piece that we have up at CJR.org, having looked through all of the stories that have gone on in this past year, Kyle, as you mentioned, this started with Barack Obama in office for the first few weeks of the year. And my takeaway from everything was just that it has been insane in terms of the amount of news, the pace at which it's coming out. And Meg, as you said, I hope that we do adapt in 2018. Um, But I think that some of those policy reporting pieces uh, are starting to get there to to focus on what's really important. And we'll talk more about some of this stuff um, in a few minutes. But, you know, I, I, I think that as journalists, we all sort of need to kneel down and kiss the ground and thank God that we're living in this moment. I mean, this is, you know, in my career in journalism, this there's never been a more exciting time 
to either be a reader of the news or certainly to be in the news business. Like, it doesn't get better than this. Um, and we just need to make sure that we're doing it smartly um, and that we're doing it and that we're, you know, that, we, that we're sort of taking a long view and we're really trying to apply some thoughtful, analytical smarts to, you know, is this something that really... And, and, to, and to keep our readers in mind, uh, and this goes to what you were saying about, like, what are our readers, how much, how much sort of raw meat do we want to give them? Um, but what, what do they need to know? And what, what, what do we need to be focused on to make them smarter or whatever, our, whatever the goal of our publication is? Yeah, I think that's a good place to end. So, Meg, when you look back at 2017 from a, a perch many years from now, what are you going to take away as one of the trends that you feel like was important this year? I think as the resident audio nerd of CJR, um, (laughs) I would say the mainstreaming and legitimization of the podcast as a medium, um, which I think is something that has been happening for a few years. There was like the quote boom after Serial in 2014. But I think this year was really less about a boom and more about a legitimization. And by that, I mean traditional news organizations like the New York Times, LA Times, Wall Street Journal, all kind of embracing the podcast as a way to communicate with their audiences. And I think the New York Times is the obvious example of a traditional news organization embracing the podcast with their super incredibly successful The Daily, which now reaches like millions of listeners. Um, And so I think that that's pretty important. The kind of acceptance of the podcast by these major news organizations. But there's also the mainstreaming in in different ways. And I think another one that maybe hasn't been talked about enough is the podcast as intellectual property. Wait, for those of us who aren't audio nerds, what do you mean? Like what? We'll get back to the patron saying of this whole legitimization, Michael Barbara, later. But what do you mean by intellectual property podcasts? So like the podcast being adapted as like source material in more, quote, mainstream um, medium. So like TV and movies and books. Uh, And it's been happening a lot this year. And some of them are like Lore, which is a fiction podcast, is now a TV show on Amazon. And a lot of different Gimlet properties like Startup and Homecoming and Crime Town, which are like three huge podcasts from the company, are all being adapted for either TV shows or movies. And it's really interesting Um, and also incredibly interesting from both a content perspective as well as a business perspective in terms of how you can grow and sustain the business of podcasting, not just the kind of editorial side of things. What about this year? I mean, does it have anything to do with this the sort of like energy that has come to journalism as a result of Trump and other things? I mean, why this year versus other years have podcasts suddenly been embraced by uh, mainstream folks? I've been thinking about that a lot, and I don't actually know if I have an answer. I think it's just been like a slow buildup, and finally something just happened. I don't know if it was a correlation or a causality with the whole rise of Trump, um, but people finding alternative ways to get their message across. I have a theory about this. Um, I, I think that this is, has been such a confounding and confusing and destabilizing year that there's something about podcasts in the sense of like nobody, the podcast format is built in a way that you're not expected to present a sort of fully formed answer. I mean, it really is fundamentally based on a conversation where people sort of talk through their thoughts, talk through how they feel about stuff, ask other people, how do you feel about that? 
I just think that we're in a we're at a moment where the ground is shifting so much that it just seems like a perfect. It seems like it seems like the perfect medium for this. Like, let's just talk about like what do you how do you think this went down or how do you, why do you think this happened, and then you actually can sort of there's a, there's more give and take than if you sit down and write something you're expected to have something more form. Does that is that a bad theory? No, I think that's actually it brings up like two really interesting things that kind of differentiate podcasting from other mediums, which is like the kind of discovery aspect to it. Podcasts are all about discovery and like learning as you're going. And sometimes you hear that learning and discovery process in the podcast itself, whether that's, you know, Radio Lab employing it or even like the crooked media people. I mean something I've thought about with why podcasts are maybe particularly suited for like our media environment right now. I mean, when I listen to a podcast, you kind of, as a listener, you get to it, like it passively participate in the actual reporting in a way that you don't with a, a story that's written um, on, you know, on paper or on, or on the internet. Um, and to me, it makes, it's a sort of step away from the idea of like stoic objectivity because like you said there's a discovery there and so the reporter you hear the reporter like talking through things in the same way that we all do when we're reporting a story but that the reader just never gets to see or hear and because we're sort of so conflicted about ideas with slant and and bias and there's all this fake news stuff and and so we're having this conversation again about um like objectivity in in media and i don't know something about a podcast seems like a healthy step away from that where there's no question about whether reporting is being done but it's it's a little bit more transparent and so you get to see and hear well you don't see anything <laughs> but you hear you hear the reporter kind of doing the reporting in a way that maybe makes it a bit more trustworthy i don't know i had a, one other thought about how it also it sort of speaks to the failure of digital platforms I, you know there was a moment a few years ago when Digital platforms were supposed to be the place where there was going to be a real sense of community where the sort of users would get to respond and there would be this sort of comment system and you would be it would be sort of this fully integrated community. That largely has not come to pass. No, uh, the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> it's this unsuccessful so, of so yeah. Yeah. I think if that Scrolls. had happened, maybe there ha- wouldn't have been the space for podcasts that has happened now, but it, it sort of filled the void or in the failure of that of those other digital platforms. I think community is the key word there. I think when you listen to a podcast, because I know it sounds cliche at this point, but it's a really intimate experience. It's a medium that is technically one to many, but it feels so one to one. And through that, you feel like you're part of this like group, I guess. I don't know. It's it's like very ethereal in a way. Um, I, I still think there's a danger if podcast medium doesn't get its act together and figuring out a way to really integrate the audience. I don't know of a lot of people who are, who are doing that in a way that feels real and authentic. And um, I think that's something they have to figure out. Otherwise, I, there, you could see the same cliff. And I think that brings up a, an important point that is in podcasting that still needs to be addressed, which is access to like analytics and information, quantitative information. Um, Apple has recently launched a new analytics platform, which will hopefully give both creators and advertisers more information about things as basic as like when someone stops listening to a podcast, which I think will help the medium grow in terms of making the content better, but also making it more of like a sustainable platform for information. And then the last thing about podcasting that's been really interesting this year is just like the experimentation with different um, forms and different types of content. Uh, So like obviously you had 
you know, your S-Town, which took a more novelistic approach. Um, you had these more biographical treatments like uh, Rubinstein, Richard Simmons, and uh, Mogul, which uh, unfortunately we, we learned that Reggie Osei, the host of that, um, died of cancer, which is really tragic. He's one of the biggest figures in podcasting. Um, and also the rise of the Daily News podcast. I don't think we can talk about podcasting in 2017 without talking about the Michael Barbaros of the world and the Daily and the Upverse with NPR. And and now Vox has their own explainer podcast that's coming out soon. Yeah. And I'm sure we're not the only ones with some time off coming up over the next few weeks. Uh, so quick roundtable podcast recommendation for winter listening when you want to avoid time with your family. Meg, go. Uh, Heavyweight from Gimlet Media. Alex. Another round. Mm, Now out on its own. Now independent. Get it, girls. (laughs) Uh, I'll go with my old standby, Hardcore History with Dan Carlin. All right, and Kyle, uh, going to our third topic that we're going to talk about. This one uh, might not be quite so upbeat, but what's going on in the business of journalism? It, well, actually, it's been a great year. For some. So, yeah, talk to me about what it looks like in 2018. But 2017 was, I think, one of the things about Trump, and, and I said earlier that I think we've had it's a really amazing year for journalism. But, and I think it's been an amazing year on the business side. Basically, what have we learned in 2017? We learned that people are willing to pay real money for news, which we didn't frankly know before 2017. We thought they were, but there wasn't a lot of good signs. Um, so for a few big news organizations, it's been amazing. And, you know, it really has sort of saved the business models of, you know, the New York Times, um, which was trying to figure out what it's going to do when, as its print and digital advertising keep going down. And, and it's helped a lot of other people, especially if you're a sort of um, niche political publication. You've got a lot of uh, money coming in. But I think this has all just kicked the can down the road for what remains sort of a fundamental business problem of um, what do you do if the display advertising model is falling apart, print advertising is non-existent, where does, who's funding journalism? And we're seeing this play out in real time today, right before our eyes in local news around the country, because nobody has really figured out how to make money on subscriptions in local news. Um, So... Those people are really struggling. There's been a decimation there. And I think, I think um, you know, 2018 could be the year of reckoning for a lot of other news organizations, especially digital first publications that had thought that they had a sort of exemption on the display advertising problem. Yeah, I agree with you on a, a top line premier prestige publication level that it's been a good year. We've seen whether you want to call it a Trump bump or just a reality that people will subscribe to the New York Times and the Washington Post and, you know, kind of glossy, fancy magazines like The New Yorker. Um, But I'm a little more pessimistic, I guess, about what this year has brought, especially to those digital media properties that you mentioned uh, for BuzzFeed, for Vice, places that are missing their revenue targets and have produced incredible journalism while doing so. I worry that we're eventually, and it, it might not be next year, it might not be the following year, but we're eventually going to get to a place where we just have a completely hollowed out system, not only from small town or regional newspapers, but from kind of mid-level to upper middle class digital publishers, too. To me, and this is sort of a controversial view, because is it really a business model if 
if it may, basically means you need some nonprofit money or some rich person to come in and 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 I'm increasingly of the view that that's the model for journalism going forward that without it it's going to be very hard to make a go of it. And I think it's important to loop in the business models of local news organizations. I mean, it's been a great year maybe for more national publications, but I mean, we lost a ton of alt-weeklies across the country. We lost DNA Info. We lost Gothamist. We lost a lot of important sources of local news um, for people, and that's going to have a lot of repercussions moving forward. And it doesn't really help the problem um, that we've had with like coastal media bubbles and just sort of a dominance of national news and and local stories that are really important but don't get national treatments unless they sort of meet very specific, you know, benchmarks that will make them interesting to those of us who are living in these corridors. So but what are the what are some of the ideas here? I mean, there's there's the find a rich person business model which the Washington Post is used. There's the um, you know, sort of be a kind of Nonprofit, for-profit hybrid, which is happening in Philadelphia, which I think is actually pretty interesting. Um, some of the nonprofits are doing quite well, and the Texas Tribune is doing amazing journalism. And the Vermont Digger, which we just had a story about on CJR. Yeah, and there's actually not a there's not a small pool of people with means who believe in journalism who are willing to invest in it. To me, it was like really telling that. The New York Times announced it's going to start a nonprofit within the newsroom to, to fund specific coverage areas. So I think that's got to be part of the model going forward. So waiting on billionaires. Waiting on billionaires. Risky business. <laughs> Very risky. Um, no, I mean, this is obviously a story that has been going on. It's not unique to 2017. But that reckoning that you mentioned, I don't know if it's coming next year, but it seems like it's somewhat inevitable for a number of publishers out there. I think it's on the horizon Speaking of a reckoning, uh, our final topic, Alex, you're up. What do you got for your trend takeaway that we're still going to be caring about in 10 years? So uh, the Me Too movement has been this really remarkable and, and rapid shift, I think, not just in how we report on sexual harassment and assault and abuse, but how we're sort of dealing with it in our own newsrooms. And in in the same way that uh, the media became sort of a character uh, in the story of of Donald Trump and his election, I think we've also sort of become part of this story uh, about like a culture of complicity when it comes to sexual harassment in newsrooms in a way that to me feels really significant and is something you kind of can't turn away from. And so it's not just the stories that are coming all the time now about powerful men uh, abusing their power in entertainment and in politics. It's also happening repeatedly for uh, really prominent journalists. And so we're sort of in this position where we're trying to write stories and reveal these problems elsewhere and at home. And uh, it's awkward and, and necessary. And I don't see that really going away. And, and I mean, I hope it sticks um, because we need it to stick. What's been really interesting is that this has kind of been like a year long process that kind of just bubbled up towards the last few months. But with starting with like the Bill O'Reilly and Bill Cosby coverage of last year, for so long, mainstream news organizations did not do a great job at tackling the subject matter. And finally, there was an embrace I don't know if that's the right word, but like an embrace in the traditional press to cover this stuff. And I think like 
we've made a really good transition to learning how to cover a sensitive topic like this. And now we're starting to learn how to cover this topic within our own industry, as Alex was saying, because it's caused both a reckoning in terms of how the media covers sexual assault and sexual harassment in power dynamics and sexism and all that stuff, and also about how we address it within our own industry. So I think it's a momentous occasion for both of those things. Yeah, something else that I think has really shifted when we think about coverage that happened on these same topics with people like Bill Cosby and uh, Bill O'Reilly and others, it, it seems like we're now writing the stories uh, with the assumption that it can be fixed. I think that the way that we've covered this stuff sort of previously, that they've been treated as isolated events and and less of like a widespread systemic problem so much as it is just this one crazy story. And I don't know, I think we're starting to have conversations, especially uh, amongst journalists, about like what can we do to fix these? And and there's a sort of underlying assumption that this can be fixed and we can do better and we have to do better in a way that feels uh, like it's sort of gaining momentum now. Yeah. One of the things that has stuck out to me over the last few weeks specifically is that when we've obviously talked about this a lot this fall and into the winter. And early on, I think I used the word movement and got some pushback from people saying, well, let's see. Let's see if this actually causes any change or if we just see a few names come out and then we kind of go back to the status quo and nothing is fixed. For you to pick this as something that you think we'll look back on in 10 years and really point to and say that was important seems to suggest that you think there is momentum and that this is causing systemic changes. I mean, I don't know that we've seen any systemic changes yet, um, but I think our attitude right now anyways is that there can be systemic change. I mean, we've had sort of moments like this before. A couple of years ago, when coverage about police violence uh, against black people sort of began gaining momentum and, and really be- and became sort of this movement or this sort of moment that we existed in where beats were being defined as, uh, you know, surrounding this sort of coverage and it was constant and it was nonstop. And part of that was because the violence was nonstop, but it was a new sort of dedication on the part of newsrooms to covering this stuff. And it's interesting to think about that, where race was the central story and how we've sort of shifted through the first year or moved through the first year of Trump and, and entered into this space where now we're talking about sexual harassment. And it's interesting to to me, it feels like um, certainly there are reporters who are still writing about police reforms and police violence. And, and when they happen, sometimes we see those stories. But there seems we've seemed to have moved on from a moment in which that is like the defining story. Part of that is because Donald Trump happened. Um, but it's interest. It will be interesting to see whether that happens with sexual harassment and assault. My probably cynical feeling is that it won't happen because we're doing better talking about like sexual harassment than I think we've ever done sort of as a country uh, with race. We just handle it so terribly still. And so I think as far as uh, what's going to drive the coverage or, or whether we'll move on from this into something else, um, it's probably less likely to happen with uh, this stuff than it than it is with anything having to do with race. You think that the sec- you're, you're skeptical about whether this, the sexual harassment stuff it will stick? No, I, I think I think it probably will stick um, or that there's a better chance of it sticking than, than race. Yeah. Yeah. How much of. Um, well, first off, I think on on the sexual harassment thing, I do think that w- we need to stop and 
think about just I mean, I, I am astonished at the speed and the depth of this moment. I mean, I read this Time magazine cover story, which which was a Time magazine cover story, but but I think one of the <laughs> one of the um, um, points that it made was just like this is a sort of social cultural movement that is has enormous velocity and power, unlike anything we've seen in quite some time, which mm-hmm. I think is true. And it raised this question about like why is this happening now, which I still don't have in my mind clarified. I mean, how much of it do you think is related to Trump? and his own history with sexual harassment and people's frustration that he seemed to have gotten away with it? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that certainly helps uh, push it to the sort of forefront of people's minds, I guess, because there was no indication before the Harvey Weinstein story broke that there was, that this was going to happen in the context of Trump, who had similar allegations made against him and, like, nothing happened. There were no consequences. So I don't, I don't know. Well, I, I sort of want to circle back to the race analogy that you make, which I think is right. And it, there's also the complicity of news organizations, just as there is on the sexual harassment side. And you've seen, you have seen some movement, at least. I mean, let's take your point that that maybe a sort of social reckoning with racism is going to take longer. But what about just even within this industry? Do you think that there's any way that the sort of sexual harassment reckoning opens a door for a, a, a more frank conversation on race in media? I mean, so far, look at like all we've got this this abundance of coverage now uh, on, on sexual harassment just just within like journalism as a sector. Almost none of it has mentioned where race intersects with all of those things. We've started to hear sort of rumblings of, well, why are all of the women who have been in a position to step forward and tell their stories been white and relatively privileged? The question has been thrown out there, and I don't think that uh, journalists have really engaged with that too much. I mean, there was that story that the New York Times did about the problems at Ford in Chicago. Um, And that seems like a starting point, if only because it's, you know, looking at the consequences of this behavior on people who are not wealthy and who are not uh, privileged and who are not exclusively people of color, but often people of color. And there were also some threads about uh, racial harassment happening there as well. So I think there's potential for that. But again, I think that there's a nervousness to, to engage with like race and how we cover it that maybe we're getting, I don't know, we're getting over it faster for sexual harassment than I think that we are going to for race just because, like, America. <laughs> I think, and I, but I, I, I <laughs> Because America. America. Hashtag America. I think the coverage is getting a little bit more intersectional. I think the John Hockenberry WNYC mm-hmm. examples are really good one in terms of, like, the intersection of racial bullying and sexual harassment in the same kind of space. Mm-hmm. But again, I completely agree about how the way that this has been kind of covered has been from a very privileged perspective. And I think actually speaking to the point about why this gained momentum the way it did, I think it was because the quote face initially with a lot of the Weinstein accusers were mostly white celebrities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I also don't think that, I mean, this is a really pessimistic outlook, but it is really difficult for me to imagine uh, a media environment, an American environment that would accommodate sort of a wave of people of color stepping forward and saying, I have been subject to racial harassment or abuse based on the basis of race because there's such a block there. As soon as we say the word race, the conversation sort of immediately shuts down. And then we have trouble 
distinguishing between or we've created this this, this uh, separation between like what is racist, like who is a racist and what is racism. And, and we've got all of these different avenues. And, and so the conversation just sort of completely breaks down. It's really difficult for me to imagine just so many stories and and, and people engaging with the stories and the way that they are with uh, sexual harassment and, and believing them as readily. Um, I think it's really astonishing that so many people read these stories and and like are believing women and it's a long time coming and certainly not everyone believes women um that's not a i I, you know that's not been suddenly solved where now we always believe women but i mean i think it's just happened with a speed that we've never seen anything happen when it comes to somebody saying that they've been subject to mistreatment on the basis of race yeah and it's been the story that has dominated things for the past few months Mm -hmm. and i imagine we'll continue to do so going into 2018. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us today and all year long. We will be off next week. Uh, We hope that you enjoy some downtime over the holidays, and we will be doing so as well. I want to thank my colleagues, Alex Neeson, Meg Dalton, and our boss, Kyle Pope, for being here. Please check out all of the content we've got up at cjra.org. We appreciate your support, and we'll see you next year.